Welcome to Once Upon an Upset Interviews. On today's episode, I interviewed Barbara Baumfreethi, a social cognitive therapist with a specialty in working with neurodivergent children and adults. Over the past 40 years, Barbara has been a teacher, developmental evaluator, play therapist, individual psychotherapist, and parent coach. She is a certified CPS provider, the collaborative and proactive solutions model developed by Ross Green, and currently meets virtually with parents and families across the country. Barbara has also developed Transdisciplinary Workshops Incorporated, organizing over 200 continuing education events for professionals and parents wanting to learn more about cognitive diversity, psychology, and mental health. In this interview, I spoke with Barbara about the basics of CPS, how people can use CPS to better connect with their partners and their children, and we also talked about some ways to listen reflectively in order to understand each other's concerns to create connection rather than deflecting and or correcting each other's concerns, which tends to lead to disconnection, stress, and reactivity. Barbara lives in coastal Maine, where she enjoys traveling to local islands, as well as sharing her great interest in geometric origami. She can be reached at barbara at transdis.com, barbara at t-r-a-n-s-d-i-s dot com. I'm very excited to have you here today, Barbara. Thank you so much for being here. I'm glad to be here too, Jess. Yes. So today we are going to be talking about um, the CPS model of, um, gosh, of, of handling conflicts. And I, well, why don't I just give it over to you, Barbara, to explain a little bit about what you specialize in and for people who don't know what CPS is, how, how it can be used in relationships with one's children and one's partners. I'd be glad to. The CPS model is, um, stands for Collaborative and Proactive Solutions. And it was developed by Ross Green in probably like 2000, year 2000. Ross Green is known best for his book, The Explosive Child, and his uh, nonprofit organization, Lives in the Balance, which is committed to the model as well as um, an enormous effort to stop restraints and seclusions in schools. Uh, I, when I first heard the model about 20 years ago, it changed my career. And what, what, what the big shift for me was the way that we were trained by Dr. Green to talk to children, always start with an empathic statement and reflective listening in order to build the trust and the communication between parent or teacher and child. Part two is to always include the child in the process rather than, there's so many models out there that are designed to tell teachers and parents and therapists, here's what you do with a kid. This is more, or I should say, here's what you do to the kid from the, just that one adult angle. And what I love is what you do together with the child. So the child is a part of the process. So finding out what's getting in a kid's way to meet the demands placed on 
he or she in school or at home is key rather than falling back on adult theories. We think our kid isn't doing well in school and having meltdowns because of A, B, and C, right? Instead, we're asking the kid, I notice you're having difficulty going out for recess. What's up? Tell me about it. Getting the kid's concerns on the table, getting our concerns on the table, and then coming up with possible solutions until everyone involved agrees on one solution. And it's very different. One of the challenges is it's very different than most of us were raised. So we have to push against the messages in our, in our heads that are telling us to do it differently. So, so I, would, I would venture to guess that most people, at least in my generation, were raised with what's called plan A parenting, which is authoritative. You must, you will, you should. Or plan C, which is never mind, you know, forget it you know, just kind of dropping expectations, right? Mm -hmm. So plan B parenting is what I just talked about. It's all about inviting the child to figure out the issues together, figure out what's going on. Thank you so much. What a beautiful explanation. And I, I feel like when I first found out about CPS, it was such a relief because I was used to reading, <coughs> excuse me, about parenting solutions that didn't speak for my situation. Like if, if, if a, a parenting solution said, you, you know, gave ideas about rewards or, or punishments or um, to set up a, um, you know, a, a situation where your kid is um, listening to what you want them to do to meet goals um, that you have for them. And, and the kid is unwilling to even participate in those scenarios. I mean, in my situation, it just led to more explosions and, and more conflict. This was the first time where I had a paradigm shift where I thought, wow, this is something that opens up the space to um, create solutions together with your child. And that was such a different idea than I'd ever heard of. Well, one of the things that I've been hearing lately, there's some new research that's showing that the one of the most important factors in kids' success as adults is the strength of the parent-child connection. And so what I'm so interested in now is helping parents increase that connection. And one way to do it is by being, you know, what the model calls a plan B parent. So it would sound something like this if your child comes up to you and says, Mom. I'm hungry. And the mom says back, no, you're not. You just had lunch. Even if you say it in the kindest voice, you're negating that child's reality at that moment. So to say, oh, I hear you. You're hungry. We did just eat lunch, but I'm wondering if, we, if you just like to have a snack to get through till dinner. Rather than to try to manage the child, you're consulting with them. It's a beautiful way to build a connection. It is such a beautiful way. And like you said, it's so opposite um, to what most of us have been raised doing. And it may feel for some parents to leave that authoritarian parenting and go into a more collaborative mindset. It may feel very, very unfamiliar. Um, in your experience, when, when you've talked to parents who may still be dealing with their own dysfunctional childhoods, 
and and they may feel like well i'm not being treated well by this child so this child needs to understand that that's wrong to treat me like that and to raise um their voice at me what are some ways that a parent can shift that lens to seeing the child as not misbehaving but to get on one of those plan b empathy lenses great question um i think one of the big things is for all of us adults to to look at children's behavior as a message to us what is that behavior trying to tell us what is the child trying to tell us by refusing to do something by melting down by not following through with requests we give them and to trust that rather than to assume you know my child is defiant or oppositional or disrespectful i hear that a lot please help me make my kid more respectful of my wishes and then when you would probe early closer you find that there's a lot of plan a parenting going on in that household and, and there are highly sensitive kids in particular that don't do well with highly with plan a parenting i mean mm -hmm. i i feel strongly all kids should not be parented through plan a but i've noticed with my clients that those highly sensitive kills kids have an extra hard time mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. wow so it's almost like a parent who has been plan aid in their own childhood. They've been raised with authoritarian parenting. You must meet these expecta expectations or else. Mm -hmm. They kind of have to do some reparenting of themselves first, I'd imagine, before they can then put on that empathy lens for their child. So, so right, in, your, yes. in, in your experience, like what, what are some techniques for a parent to begin to shift from that plan A lens for themselves to a plan B lens? Because I'd imagine that a parent has to do a whole lot of self-soothing to just pause in that moment when your child is saying, I hate you, or no, or I'm not going to do this before a parent reacts. What are some ways that they can shift themselves to having some compassion and empathy for themselves first. What's coming up for me right away when you ask that question is the need for us as parents to have self-compassion. Because when we are triggered into sort of a reflexive response, it's like our parents, some of that's because our child within us is scared or nervous or feels out of control. And to move into a, another way of doing things where we're not in plan A, can make us feel very afraid. What will happen? What will mm -hmm. happen? What would have happened to me if I had talked back to my parents like this? You know, and again, back to really reading their behavior as a way to communicate to us. Um, I want to say a little bit more about your question, though. Uh, really spending time to look at the the positives and the negatives of our own growing up can be very helpful in raising our kids, getting in touch with that. So many of us say, when I have a kid, I'm not doing anything that my parents did. I'm gonna do it completely different. And then when things start to get a little rocky, what happens? All of a sudden we <laughs> seek what's familiar. We <laughs> seek what, you know, the no, go to your room, time out. You've just lost computer for the rest of your life or whatever it is that <laughs> we're threatening with, because we feel out of control. 
you know? Mm-hmm. So trusting that there's another way is important. And I love working with partners, couples on how to do that work together. Um, how, to, how to get the, the past relatives out of the room that are sort of in the way, <laughs> the past relationships. Yes, and you say such a brilliant thing, Barbara, ejecting the past. To be able to have the skills to eject the past and be in present time with what's happening right before you can be the beginning of of being able to put on a different lens. And, And when you said that to me for the first time, it really shifted something. Yeah, the past looms right in when things get sticky. It does. It doesn't. So when when couples are saying to me, I feel triggered by my son or my daughter, or I feel triggered by my partner, right there, that's a beautiful opportunity to open the door to talking a bit about the past and how it's interfering and then ejecting it. (laughs) It does get in the way. It does. And when, when, I, when I read um, in Facebook groups, parents who are really looking for some guidance and help, what I hear over and over again are conflicts in the house that are so layered with um, blind spots. And a blind spot, I would say, when people are being triggered by something that's not in real time, something that happened from the past, but they're reacting in the present moment to those past things. And then you've got a child who's being a child and reacting, and you've got a a, a partner, like a husband or a wife, um, reacting from their past to that moment, and the other partner reacting. And there's this three different explosions going on in that same moment. And someone has to be in a position to eject the past and to then put on those empathy lenses and start sorting things out. But that's such a hard thing to do. I mean, where do you even begin if one person is going to be the one who says, you know what, I've got to transform this family? Mm -hmm. I mean, how first, how does that person be able to get over their disappointment that they've got to do this all alone and how do they what what might be a strategy to to just self-soothe in that moment to to shift that dynamic that's a big question what if anything comes up beautifully said Jess just beautiful what when I started using the CPS model for many years I was directing my work solely to the parents way of interacting with their kids. And in the last, oh, maybe four years or so, I've shifted more into making sure that the parents could talk to each other the same way that I was encouraging them to talk to their kids. And I found a lot of the parents I work with really struggled with that. You know, the first step is making sure that they both have the same lens on about who their kid is. That's really important. But are they in fact, using empathy and reflective listening with each other. Mm-hmm. And I've been finding more often they're not, you know, so they're caught in a dynamic that sounds a little like this. Um, let's say one parent goes out of the house to work and the other one works at home. The one that's been working out of the house comes home and said, I've had a terrible day. I'm exhausted. I can't do a thing. Then the at-home parent says, you think you've had a bad day. Let me tell you about mine. There's nowhere to go from there, right? 
Yes. So I really coach parents on taking that moment to stay calm and say, I'm really sorry you had a tough day. It sounds awful. I'd like, you know, come on in. Let's sit down together. I want to hear about it. And then later, I'd like to tell you about mine, right? So putting that other, the person who's coming, doesn't have to be coming in, but the person who's sharing the difficult day, putting that on the front burner, and but always coming back to the other piece too. And the more we do that with one another, it doesn't even have to be in, in couples relationships. It can be with our coworkers, our friends, to be able to validate what they're putting out there. We feel so invisible in this world when we don't validate. And with friendships, if you don't mind me going into that, it's a little bit tricky too, because we can so easily want to fix our friend's pain. You know, oh, you're having a hard time. How about if we, I come over right now and we go for a walk instead of, I really hear you. That had to be tough what happened today. Tell me more. That's what that person needs. Yes. That's so powerful, Barbara. And, and it's so that shift that it takes to go from this person does not care about what I've been through that day. This person does not appreciate what I do to, to realize that that is aligned with past trauma, perhaps, and to be able to shift from that to, you know what, I'm going to validate this person. It sometimes feels like, well, that person doesn't deserve to be validated, <laughs> you know, but to shift from that space, I've noticed that it becomes more of a value of who I'm going to be in the world to right. say, you know what, I'm going to validate, not because of this person deserving or not deserving, but because I value peace and I value um, connection more than protection. And to say, what's going to happen if I validate and say, wow, you know, that must have been a really tough day. All of a sudden, that person is going to be someone different. It's like giving, it's like taking such a huge chance. And I've learned this from your, from, from your wisdom. To give someone a chance to show up differently is, is a huge new thing. But wow, does it make a difference, right? The, what comes up for me while you're talking, Jess, is the word safety. Uh-huh. So even though we feel like, does that person deserve my uh, empathy right now? I'm kind of angry with them. A lot of it's about people not feeling safe in the world, not safe in their relationships, not safe when their, their inner child is out, they're triggered. To be able to, to create a safe space for that other person who's triggered is going to help both parties stay out of fight or flight, right? Yes. So that's the purpose of it. It's a very loving, mindful way to relate as opposed to, you know, it's, it really is so much like how we can talk to our kids when we're upset. We can talk to our partners that way too. If you come in the door acting like that one more time, you're out of here, right? (laughs) Again, downhill slide, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. I do have a question, though, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, What is some wisdom around a toxic partnership where the one partner is willing to do the work, the other partner isn't in a position yet to be able to look at their blind spots and do the work? What can that person do to still self-soothe without being triggered 
and without resorting to being reactive, escalating the household and creating more toxicity? I, my, my reaction to that question, Jess, would be to try as hard as one can to use the plan B model. And you know, all of the angst the parent under stress is feeling to have that be validated by other people, therapists, friends, whatever. But in dealing with the toxic parts of the relationship is to be able to little bit by little bit say to the other person, I noticed that when you, um, when I suggest we put our heads together to fix the house up, you get very defensive with me. Could we talk about it? No, but picking just a, a little bit at a time, not an overall thing. Like you're such a defensive person. You know, you're always getting angry at me. That's, that's going to make the other person feel triggered into fight or flight, right? So huge amounts of self-care for oneself, for people that are in that situation, but setting a model and a little structure for ways to work out problems as they come up. Thank that is also to say it's very difficult. I'm not saying that's a recipe for instant success, but it, it is an assurance that things won't escalate more and that there's a possible path to working better together. Yes, and two things came up when I was listening to you speak just now. And one is when so many of us, like we've mentioned, come from dysfunctional households. And when we haven't been validated in the past, we have grown up, many of us, without the skills to self-validate. And we're still looking for our partners. And sometimes even our children trigger us because we don't feel like our messages or our teachings are being validated by our own kids or our own partners. So it's I love thinking about the plan B empathy lens for ourselves. How can we validate ourselves for the first time and getting all that artillery out of the way well this person is going to be the one to validate me or else this person's finally going to listen to my good ideas this kid or else to shift into that self-validating and I'm wondering if there's any um, wordings because you always have such beautiful <laughs> wordings like what can someone say to themselves to to get themselves out of a needing validation outside of themselves to self-talk to get back to that, well, how can I validate myself? This question hits home, so and I'm glad to talk about it. I found um, developing a relationship with the little Barbaras in me to be a very, very tough piece of work for me. And um, it's been a part of my life for all of my adulthood. But being able to recognize the little me's in there that were hurt, you know, that weren't validated, that were um, made me feel invisible, to be able to talk to those parts of myself it, with compassion is worth gold. So if I'm waking up in the middle of the night and I'm anxious about something, I can't sleep, I try to remember to talk to all those parts of myself, all the young, young Barbaras. And it, it always helps. I love that so much. That's just beautiful. And what a way to just validate oneself and to give oneself that feeling that we matter 
you know, so, so often when I'm up in the middle of the night at three in the morning, I'm just like trying to escape that feeling of dread and doom and everything is not right here and there, but to shift towards going toward those little Jessica's right. <laughs> <laughs> and to, to feel where that feeling is in my body and mm-hmm. to bring it back to its source. Like, wow, little Jessica got really hurt in fourth grade when she was told that she was never going to amount to anything and that she turns people off. Like, wow, that person wasn't thinking clearly when they said that to that little Jessica. I'm sorry, little Jessica, that you had to feel that. And it's hard work to reparent ourselves, especially if we're busy with all kinds of other relationship obligations. Yeah. And I'm so glad you said, Jess, the piece about where do I feel it in my body? Because that's huge. And being able to put your hand wherever that is, if it's your heart or your head, and be compassionate with yourself. Yes. And I find that it's really interesting. It's almost like we have these bookmarks in our bodies of upsets that have been unresolved. And I notice at three in the morning, that's like my big time to brood. (laughs) (laughs) That I can, when I focus on a part of my body that's hurting, I find it fascinating that specific memories come to the surface. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. So amazing. I'm so glad there's so much work being done in in somatic therapy now. It's so important. And are you familiar with the polyvagal theory? I I am. Fabulous work. Stephen Porches. Yeah. Yes, I, I learned about that when I first learned about um, the Ross Green stuff and, and the stuff you've taught me. And it's just something that I think should be taught in schools to kids. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Do you want to talk just in case our listeners don't know just a tiny bit about the polyvagal theory or just like a little bit about stress, um, yeah. about what's you know, where safety and stress, it's a little like what we're already talking about, but any additional piece on safety? One of the things my takeaways from it is learning how to be in a mindset, body mindset during the day that is good enough. And it's nice if there's times that are really good and sometimes nice that it's okay if there are times that are, are, they're okay, but not great. But being able to move in and out of those states throughout a day without dropping into freeze or going numb, leaving our bodies, dissociating, and without being, you know, fall, getting into the whole fight or flight triggered uh, space where we, it's very difficult to relate to one another. And one of the ways that, that the polyvagal people talk about doing that is to really identify what are the feelings you have when you're in those positive states where do you feel it in your body you know where are you in the environment and learning how to create pictures in your mind of that or actually going to those places so building up coping mechanisms to stay in that zone of regulation that works well Hmm. it's very simplistic summary but it's what what I take away from it yeah I'm sure everybody It's so powerful, though, because what I 
take away from what you've summarized right there is how how the expectation of a day is sometimes so unrealistic for me personally. I'll think, well, today's going to be the day where there's no conflict and no drama. And, and I'm just going to make sure that that things go okay. But in reality, there are just seasons throughout the day that seem to, um, you know, depending on what kind of culture you have in your house and in my house, the seasons can change every hour. And, and to, to be able to find a place to self-regulate with being um, prepared emotionally that things can change um, throughout the course of the day and to not have expectations for how things might turn out seems to be a really empowered way to, to be in, in a household where you just don't know what's going to happen next. <laughs> oh, Jess, that's so well said. I, I'm glad you used the word self-regulation because I think that's key for us as parents, if we're mostly talking about parenting here and helping our kids through our model how to self-regulate. Yes. Our, our model is so powerful to our children and being able for kids to be raised, not just with plan B, but to hear the adults around them communicating in a mindful plan B way is a, a real recipe for success. It really is. <laughs> yes. And I'm, I'm laughing because what you said is so true because I've had a moment where my my son will raise his voice and say something just almost telling me well well I should just have to deal with this and then I said well where where in the world did you ever hear that and he said from you <laughs> and, and I had that moment where I then suddenly remembered one time where I was feeling so impatient and I felt so justified in saying it at that moment because I had been feeling really disrespected and I was not having my best day at all. I was tired and reactive, but I did say that. But somehow I had a blind spot when he said it to me. I thought, oh my gosh, I'm not going to be talked to like that. But that was a little bit of a shift for me where I realized that that kids really do model after what they're seeing. And, and that's when I realized, like, if I just role model my values and, and how I think I'm happy as being or the most constructive or empathetic way, then he really does learn that from me rather than my explaining how it should be. What a safe environment you've created for your son. He, he never would have said that to you if that weren't the case. Oh, thank you. It's beautiful that he did that. Thank you. Well, he sure gave me an opportunity to see something I hadn't seen. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, we have a, 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 a couple more minutes. Do, okay. do you have? And, and then we'll just finish up. This has been such a wonderful um, opportunity to speak with you. And I'm wondering if parents are, 
are listening and they want to learn more about this stuff, um, where might they go first to just get a little bit of a deeper um, set of tools for the CPS model? And where can I would recommend going to the website called livesinthebalance.org. And there's a great deal of information there about the CPS model. Um, originally, I mentioned there's a book that um, has been re, you know, edited, re, republished many times, uh, The Explosive Child. But I also really like one of Dr. Green's recent books called Raising Human Beings. And basically what that book is about is using the, the CPS model with all children, not just with children that have behavioral concerns. So, so livesinthebalance.org or raising human beings. Very good. And just one last thing before we go, I, I just wanted to reiterate one thing you said in case parents are listening and they feel overwhelmed or they wanna start practicing with a plan B empathy lens. Something you said that was so profound, just to stick with one tiny problem to solve. Like we tend to want to just bring up a billion things. Well, this isn't working. This isn't working. This isn't working. If you wouldn't mind speaking our last thing, just one minute about, about how important it is to stick with one small problem. Yeah. First, I'd, I'd like to say that regardless of what curriculum teachers use or what models parents use or what books they go by. It's really the most important thing I feel is how we talk to our kids. I think that's way more important than picking just the right approach. And that's why I like this particular model though, because it is geared toward increasing parent-child interrelationship. It's, 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 it's absolutely um, a very, very uh, powerful method. Um, and now, Jess, I'm forgetting part two to your question. That's okay. Um, something I've learned from you is to keep, when you're talking to your partner or your child, when you're really upset, you mm -hmm. pick one tiny thing Correct. to talk about. You don't say like, well, you did this, and then I have evidence that you did this, and then this right. didn't work. To stick to one tiny thing to begin the journey of having empathy instead of authority. Absolutely. And I, I can't emphasize that enough. And I'm glad you brought it up. So a good example would be if a parent and child are working on, um, let's say the parent is concerned that the child is sneaking food out of the refrigerator at night. And um, we're working on the concerns and new ways to solve the problem. We solve it beautifully, or we come up come up with a great solution to try. And then at that moment, a parent might say, okay, now I want to bring up another problem. You know, I got to tell you something, my son's not doing well. We need to work on it. It almost takes the energy out of that beautiful piece too. And the more we use the model to uh, solve problems, the more it becomes part of our own language, language every day. Yes. Right? So it doesn't feel so canned. Yes. But go, go slow and get some help with other people to do it. And I think you'll find it's a wonderful approach. Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much, Barbara, for talking with me today. As usual, you've given me so many things to think about. And I think our listeners, too.
So thank, thank you, you, Jess. And I think your podcast is so wonderful. And oh. I look forward to continuing to follow it. Oh, thank you so much, Barbara. And well, I hope you have a beautiful rest of the day. You too, Jess. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to Once Upon an Upset interviews. For Once Upon an Upset podcast for kids and parents, please visit onceuponanupset.com, where you'll find stories and conversations to help make sense of difficult times. This episode was written and produced by me, Jessica Laurel Kane, and the music was made by Jerome Rawson at Fresh Made Music. See you next time.